What is the secret to capital growth and how should it be measured? Over what sort of time period? And if we agree that capital growth should be our primary property investment goal, what data can we rely upon to make our purchasing decisions? It's a competitive space with lots of differing opinions. And while we may think of data as fact, and a safe basis for making decisions, it's how we slice and dice it that matters. In fact, the same data set can tell two or maybe even more conflicting stories. So how can we know what to rely on? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, we're talking with another property data specialist, Jeremy Shepard. Jeremy's passion is using property data to find great capital growth locations. And in 2010, he created the demand to supply ratio or DSR, which is a predictor of capital growth. And winding back from there, he's very open about buying 15 investment properties in the noughties before subsequently offloading a number of them. To quote Jeremy, I think I've made all the mistakes I can for now. From here, it's all about helping other investors avoid the mistakes I made. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jeremy. It's a great place to start learning from our own mistakes. It's why we have a property dumbo in every episode. Yeah, well, I could have an entire episode of Property Dumbo's all personal experience. So, yeah, I've got a baker's dozen of uh, huge mistakes that I've made in the industry. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not just yourself, Jeremy. Thanks for coming on. I think the uh, property market, you know, we know that you know, 78% of property investors only buy one. A lot of them don't hold them that long. And, you know, you only have to look at CoreLogic's pain and gain report to see that a lot of property, people in property don't do well. Um. But I think it's always, you know, doing what I've done uh, for, since 2012, it's it's really chatting to every um, people and, and seeing what decisions they've made over time and, and then back testing that and saying, okay, well, that did that really work or didn't work or, you know, and hearing individual property stories. So, I mean, before we got to go a bit more about your demand supply ratio and all lots of things we're going to talk about today, um, I mean, is there sort of some key mistakes that you think that are good takeaways for listeners to to avoid oh wow yeah where do i start um uh, down your alley chris um financing so i was very aggressive with my finance i was after the best possible loan i could get i had some peculiar circumstances with trusts and so on and uh if only one lender will touch you you're in a risky position because uh, they've got you over a barrel so yeah that's that was one of the big mistakes and and that um that had me selling properties so uh there's one um should i go on well actually yeah do go on but but even even just let, uh, leading into that i mean obviously people at the moment might be feeling the pinch of increasing interest rates and so that's that's sort of a lending style issue or right or on the on the same sort of theme so you were sort of forced to sell down because it was um of those no one decisions. Else would touch no? Me. no no okay no, no one else would touch me yeah so you but you like you said it led you to sell down some how did you then decide which ones to sell <laughs> well uh interestingly i at that point in time i had the demand to supply ratio so that that 
became invaluable, uh, except for the properties in New Zealand. Um, and I sold those off because, well, I, I, I just didn't have the intel. And I realised after creating that algorithm just how valuable it was. So it highlighted to me that, uh, that I've got a risk with these properties in New Zealand. I don't actually know what's going on there. And so it just made more sense to, to get rid of the risky. So the lack of knowledge was the risk. In a way. That's right. Yeah, yeah. risk is what you don't know. It's ignorance. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the finance risk is definitely um, how you structure any type of investment, whether it's buying your first home or upgrading or your first investment property or when you are leveraging up, how you structure that and maintain the risks with things like interest only. And you're right, going, you've got to be dangers of going to second tier and third tier lenders that may increase your borrowing capacity a little bit, but you know, do you become a mortgage prisoner and, you know, do their rates shoot up? Are they got better, you know, worse funding lines, et cetera. So I think there's, you know, you're right. I could go on and on about that. On the property per se though side, like, is there some sort of key takeaways where you said, like, I'll never buy another off the plan apartment or I'll never, you know, is there, there's certain things that you've sort of learned there? Uh, well, I never did buy uh, anything off the plan uh, or in any greenfield estate. Uh, but, uh, some of the mistakes I have made is, uh, you know, it's funny when, when I had 16 investment properties, I still considered myself a bit of a noob because I, I purchased a report. Um, here are some hot locations around Australia, a few reports, in fact, and, uh, I just thought, yeah, they're, they're well written. Um, there seems to be a, a decent amount of research going in here. But the author really had no idea what they were doing. And uh, uh, I bought in Gladstone in 2008 uh, on the back of one of these uh, hotspot recommendations. I sold that one uh, late 2022. Was it early this year? 14 years later for 20% less than what I paid for it. So I estimated the opportunity cost there to be around about a million dollars. Uh, whilst the rest of the nation was just going going great over that period of time, more than doubled in value, this place actually went backwards. And um, there were four other locations that I picked out from those reports that I was planning to buy on, buy in. I only bought in one, and it was a similar story, and the other two were a similar story too. So uh, that was a real wake-up call for me about, you know, what is an expert? There are lots of self-proclaimed experts there are experts at marketing themselves as experts uh, and then they are nothing like experts and there's a lot of them in the industry so i'm uh, very skeptical nowadays and uh, i think that probably uh, tuned my attention to to research just knowing how easy it is to to go the the, the totally wrong direction it's a really interesting point right so this is one of the things we've seen time and time again, right? The the next best hotspot, or you should buy in this suburb for X, Y, or Z reasons. Um, and it's like this hidden gem, and then it's on a report, etc. Um, people are naturally looking for that advice. Actually, all you're doing is selling you know, bananas to monkeys, to be honest, because the monkeys are looking for that. They they come to you asking, "Hey, where should I invest? Where should I buy?" Um, and then they build a report for that, um, and they can sell thousands of them because people are looking for that information. But you know, time and time again, I think the results are similar to what you're talking about. It's not driven by anything besides. Um, you know, not backed by any research, I guess. Is that what, what was Well, what hang on. It is that? backed by research, but it's just the, how they've applied that research and, and you know, because how do I with statistics, that book that Kent recommended to me that I've read 
written in 1954. It's gold. If anyone wants to understand how statistics can be used to mislead us or to sell a, sell a dream, I guess, um, go and read that book. It's a very easy read. Um, so yeah, it's research, but it's just the, the conclusions that have been arrived at aren't necessarily helpful. So that's right. Yeah. Were you obviously you were into property in the sense that you bought so many of them and you were obviously actively buying these reports and looking. Were you always a data guy? Like, were you in like a data specialist in a different field at the time? Like, what actually led you to get into the property data space? No, I, I studied electrical engineering at uni and uh, before I even finished uni, I was getting jobs in IT. This is before the dot-com crash, so rates were better. Um, I, I got into to share investing, realised I was terrible at that and, uh, uh, yeah, switched over to property because I thought it just made more sense. I, I, I'm a human being. I know where I want to live. Uh, so... I guess the, um, yeah, the data analysis, yeah, I don't have any history with it. I don't have any formal qualifications and I'm not a data scientist. Some people uh, mistake me as that. Uh, I, I would call myself as a, as a property investor first things. Uh, and then secondly, as maybe a property investment data analyst. Um, but it was a, it was a, a penny dropped in late 2009 when Back in those days, there used to be magazines, things called magazines, and they had uh, data in the back of them. And I used to just look at the, the data and I thought, how could I use any of this to help make a, a, a more informed decision? And then I realised this is all about supply and demand. Every commodity, product, service, the price changes based on the demand relative to supply. And so I started looking at metrics from that perspective. Is this a metric of demand or of supply? How can I pull those all together and then acquire data for every suburb around Australia so that I can use the same algorithm to make an objective decision on, on where to buy? And that led me to yeah, looking uh, for more and more metrics. Now, when I first spoke to you, it would have been back in 2018, I think, and I was trying to work out long-term capital growth. How do we predict long-term capital growth? And and if oh, I hate to, I mean, I, I'm relying on paraphrasing here because I can't remember the exact, but I, I'm fairly certain that you said to me back then, look, you know, the best I'll put money on is two years right? Um, that's as far out as I am prepared to put my money on. So is that what DSR, which is demands, uh, hang on, DSR, your demand supply ratio, is that what it does? Is it Basically, you've looked at all the different inputs and said, right, these are what contribute to this ratio. This ratio is what's uh, the greatest predictor uh, in terms of how this the, the rel relativity between supply and demand works. Um, it, is it still two years? Is it still to say that, you know, this is this is what I see in the near future? It's, it's actually three years. So most markets seem to play out in about three years, but it can go longer. It could be like half a dozen or it could be over in, in 18 months. Uh, so when there is one of these imbalances in supply and demand, it doesn't take long for the market to respond to that. And so forecasting using this, this approach is very difficult over a, a longer period of time. And although, uh, there are some metrics, um, uh, that that lead to higher capital growth over the long term. Uh, there are a couple of issues with with uh, pursuing long term growth. I mean, first of all, uh, you need data 
from, let's say your long-term period is 20 years. So you need at least 30 years of historical data in order to, to find some metrics. And things like auction clearance rates, vacancy rates, things like that, they're just not that old. So the, the amount of data that you have, historical data from 20, 30 years ago, is, is a little bit threadbare. And then there's the issue that over time, uh, things change. Um, so we don't have any data now about uh, where the key locations are for, for transport um, via teleport because uh, that thing hasn't been invented yet. But you can bet that if it if there's something real, uh, maybe it's um, magnetic levitation tubes or something, vacuum levitation, who knows what the future holds. But what we do know is that uh, a significant change to technology can result in a significant change to, to property markets and what people, what features people value. Uh, there are some some that haven't changed, and, and I would be betting, I'd never bet against the the long term trends. Um, but yeah, it is it is difficult, but not impossible to pick uh, outperformers over the long term. So it, when you talk about um, you need thirty years worth of history to be able to sort of look out in the you know ahead twenty years. Isn't it, uh, and then so much changes, so of course, that, that makes it very, very difficult. And um, isn't it then important to understand what the underlying fundamentals are so you can sort of make a better gamble on an area that has shows consistency of what we do know contributes to capital growth as opposed to what might happen in the future? Because I know there's a lot of um, speculative uh, investing in, you know, like greenfield sites and airports and, you know, fast train lines and all that sort of stuff but there is risk inherent in that whereas if you're actually looking at at locations that already have a certain amount of amenity or connectivity or lifestyle or whatever and you think okay well that's likely to continue over time those other areas need to have that major infrastructure uh to um to be put in place or to be created so that those areas share the same sort of amenity wouldn't you sort of to say, okay, well, there's ways to predict some areas are going to be more a safer bet for the future, or are you sort of more focused on? That's all we can do. All we can do is look at historical data. So if there is any evidence in, uh, say, for example, proximity to CBD. Uh, so this is this is a, a hotly debated topic and, and one that I've looked at, um, uh, dare I say it, exhaustively. And there, there's nothing in it that I can see in the data. I mean, I'm always looking to try and improve the algorithm. Uh, distance from CBD is very easy to calculate, um, but it's it's just not a predictor of future capital growth. So, yeah, all we're doing is looking for these historical metrics that we can rely on uh, without any speculation about, um, you know, magnetic levitation vacuum tubes or driverless cars or, or anything like that. So, so with the, um, I mean, if you're trying to predict something over three years, um, with and you, are you basing that decision whether to buy or not over the what's going to work over 10, 20, 30 years, or is it purely just, hey, this sub this area looks really good over three years because, hey, very low listings, growing population, all these metrics that you want to sort of um, use, which we can talk about, but is the decision then to sell? Like, is the is it get in while you can, get in before the market knows it's a good place to buy and basically get out before the market, you know, decides the run's over? Uh, well, actually, the market has probably already started. Uh, so f in order for demand to greatly exceed supply, it's already gone through 
marginally exceeding supply. So there may have already been some capital growth. But the good thing about uh, investing in real estate is it, it moves like an oil tanker, not a, a runabout. So it takes a long time to turn around. So if you do have your finger on the pulse, you can jump in without missing out on, on too much growth. And typically what I've seen is is growth, you have a growth surge of, say, three years. Now that's, you know, everything varies dramatically, but that's sort of what I'd say is typical. And then you see that, say, the next three years would be, pretty much flat or very mediocre. So it's, it's very lumpy, the growth. There's nothing smooth about it. So the idea is recognise a market that's um, where demand is smashing supply, enter that market, and then uh, if you're keeping your finger on the pulse of that market, it will reach a point where it's pretty clear that it's peaked. And uh, there's there's good evidence to suggest that going forward, that's going to be a fairly flat market and you could actually move your money elsewhere, depending on if there's an elsewhere that's so much better. And, and what do you think the minimum return that you need over that short time frame to, to make this a good bet, right? Because transaction costs, let's just call it circa 10%, um, and you're going to be paying capital gains tax, so you're going to lose 25% of the gains. So, you know, what after, you know, what return? Are you saying 30% is the minimum? Um well, well, you nailed it with the, the CGT. So if someone has seen very little CGT, um, I, I, I put the figure at 12%. You said 10% for transaction costs. I put it at around about 12%. Um, so that, that's without even considering CGT. So if you bought a dud five years ago, it's been flat. Uh, one fortunate circumstance, if you can call it that, is that you don't have to pay CGT when you sell. So <laughs> then you then you are looking at those transaction costs of about 12%. So let's say you forecast over the next three years, the replacement property market is going to grow by, I don't know, 40%. And the current property market where you are invested is is going to be flat, then that's a that's a no-brainer. That's really easy. Um, but once you introduce CGT, uh, that that changes a lot of things. There's there's a property, the first property that I bought, I've got so much capital gains tax liability there that every time I do this analysis, uh, the data tells me you, you've got to hold. But there are circumstances, you'd think it's quite infrequent, but there are plenty of circumstances where uh, where there is an opportunity for investors uh, to sell and and it's clear. Well, I mean, there's no point buying it. If, if, you, yeah, if you're going to try to buy them over a short time and you're not focusing on the long term, my worry is that you, yeah, you're right, you, get, you create a problem for yourself, right? You put a rod for your own back, right? So you buy something at 500, it goes up 40%. So it goes up from 500 to 700. You get it right, right? You, you've timed it perfectly. Um, and you're probably right. You, you, you Potentially it was 450 Um and you had to buy it at 500 because the market already moved. It was already moving. You were chasing a moving ball a little bit. Um, so it's got significant growth, this. But once you take out the transaction cost 60K, you made 140K. Then you're going to pay 25% of that in CGT, probably, like or 20, 25, depending, because you hold it more than 12 months. So now you've got 100 grand in your pocket. Um, and that's if it goes really well on this scenario. Um, but you can't hold it because you know that it's going to be lumpy. So... <laughs> you're better off just getting paying that, you know, 35k of CGT um, to then potentially go and recycle it. Is that sort of the way that this really works? Is you you're constantly trying to find the next best spot? And and how does it if if you you know because if if for example you do sell, are you then at the mercy of the market of whatever it is in 2026 trying to find another asset? And you know the whole got to f go through that whole process again. There's a lot of legwork trying to find good assets, right? You can't just all of a sudden pluck one. 
That's right. Yeah, well, obviously it all comes down to the numbers. And you mentioned a term there, recycling costs. So that's the term that we put for CGT, Agents Commission, legal fees, and then re-entering the market paying stamp duty, more legal fees. So all of those costs is the trouble that you're going to. And you can factor in what your time is worth. Like you said, you know, there's a lot of uh, headache involved in selling and then and then finding another market and buying again. What we're doing is comparing recycling costs with opportunity costs. So we forecast the growth for the market that you're currently in, forecast the growth for the alternative, you know, the, the, the best. And if there's a significant difference, like opportunity costs heavily outweighs recycling costs, then it makes sense to, to sell, to move on. Uh, if, on the other hand, they're even just close, then, yeah, the best advice is just sit tight. Because, yeah, I could, I could see that the DSR would work as a really great tool in deciding when to sell or even as you, you know, in terms of your priorities, if you were going to sell some properties, if you had more than one that you wanted to sell, it could be a very useful part of that decision-making process to work out how you set your priorities there. Um, in terms of buying with an intention to recycle, then that just amps up the risk hugely, right? So you've got to have, be a particular type of investor with a particular appetite for risk to do that because what if you're wrong on your on your choice of your next one? You've just undone absolutely everything. And the other thing too, that in your, your DSR, is that for suburb or for SA3? That's for suburb, yeah. We can aggregate it to SA3, but it is at the suburb level. But but what you're saying there about the risks, that's why you would want a to factor in a significant margin for error. Um, you would want the difference in the two forecasts, your existing property and the replacement, to be, you know, quite considerable. And what would you, like if you're going to put a number on that, what would you say, like in terms of a percentage? Oh, if, if the DSR was 70 versus... 35. I right. mean, that to me is a no-brainer, yeah. Mm. So, and on that though, also, how do you account for within any any suburb, you will have properties that outperform and properties that underperform? So, because this really then, if for this to be successful, if you're going to use a DSR to pinpoint a location to invest, to then monitor DSRs to work out, well, what's next after it sort of hits, gets its, hits its peak and plateaus, you, if you don't master the art of choosing an individual asset, you could undo it all by picking an underperformer or you could supercharge it if you knew how to actually select an overperforming asset. Where does that come? Because that's something that I haven't come across data that actually will pinpoint an individual property. Do you, is that something that you're working on? Yes. Um, and... I originally, you've probably heard the phrase, I've uh, heard this so many times, um, the suburb does 80% of the heavy lifting. And and I I assumed something similar. I thought that's probably a good guess. But I knew, I know that everyone who says it is just guessing. So nobody has done any research on it. So uh, Luke Metcalf, founder of Microburbs and I, um, have started work on this just recently. And... Um, I must admit that um, I was a bit surprised at initial results, but there's there's something to be said for well, yeah. I don't want to uh, I don't want to um, spoil the announcement that we might have <laughs> later in the year, but the the point is what you're saying. Asset selection is definitely important, and uh, yeah, the suburb is the first step, and you could 
you could undo what you've done. Whenever I have clients ask me, you know, where, where's the where's the suburb that I should be buying in, Jeremy? Here's our brief. And so I'll do the research for them and give them a, a list of suburbs. Straight away, after I've given them the, the, the suburb, um, they start asking, well, what should I buy here? Which property? And the only advice that I can give at the moment is buy something that's that's typical because that is what the DSR is based on. We're, we're aggregating this sort of data. So if you buy something that's atypical, you could, like you said, Veronica, supercharge it or you could undo it. So play safe and, and just buy something that's typical is the best advice I can give them. Um, but so, Veronica... What is it that you're looking for then in a, in a property? Like as opposed to the suburb, you've got the suburb figured out. What are the sort of features that you'd be looking for? Well, there is there are two features, I guess, fall into two categories. First of all, you've got to look at universal features. For example, uh, you don't want to be on a main road. Right, you don't want to be uh, have the wrong aspect, particularly you know if you're in Brisbane, for instance, you don't want a garden that faces west. If you're in Melbourne, you don't want a garden that faces south. Uh, you want so you want good natural light. You want uh, you want to be close to transport without being too close to it. You know because you don't want to be impacted by the negative aspects of say a train station, but you certainly want to be within an easy walk to that. So there's things that are sort of universal under um, along those lines, and then there's things that are specific to every location. Like for example, my office. I often talk about Balmain. Uh, if you bought a weather a weatherboard cottage in Balmain, then you'd be doing you know, that's great. People love weatherboard cottages in Balmain. They're pretty and, and you know, and they're really in keeping with the area. Um, and there's a number of different types of typical properties, though, there. You know, if a, a weatherboard cottage is one, a, a Victorian terrace is another. You know, there's a number of different types of properties that you might call typical. But if you went and bought a, a weatherboard cottage, say, in another suburb, maybe you go to Gladesville, and um, a weatherboard cottage there is not as typical, not as well regarded because it's a bit atypical, you know. So that low understanding of knowing what actually works in one suburb will not work universally in other suburbs that that's quite key to it because people and I know we see this certainly in our in our areas that we uh, that we operate in as a buyers agency and we see buyers that come from out of the area and what they gravitate towards and they often will see an opportunity because obviously no other buyers interested in it because the locals don't like the the atypical on the lower end of the scale and they'll think they've got a great bargain but when they come to sell it they'll find it they have to find another buyer like them and there's less of them around you know so that 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 sort of that typical thought pattern is what underpins what we look for in a property yeah, well, I mean, all the DSR is looking at at the at this point is yeah suburb suburb level. So let's get in the right ballpark first, that sort of thing. That's yeah, the, you have that's to. the question and answers. Yeah, Jeremy, if you were looking at a suburb, just what's the number? Like, go through your metrics, I guess, and, and I know you've got a few of them, so it could take a while. But what are some of the main ones you think that you know? Yeah, you, like when I'm looking at a suburb, I'm just straight on a satellite, right? I'm just like, where is this property located? Like, I want to know exactly what's around it. You know, and and so what's your go-to? Like, where do you initially, someone pulls a random suburb, I just say, right, Brunswick in Victoria, right? Uh, everyone knows Brunswick, or most people do. What are the things you want to know about Brunswick to know whether it's got a good DSR score, right? Like, what are the, what's the first one you go to? Uh, well, I, I really just look at the DSR. I don't really look much at the, the base metrics. So the algorithm is built in such a way that it, it puts all this together. And quite often I'll have people uh, contact me and say, oh, Jeremy, how come this suburb has 
a 0% auction clearance rate, uh, and yet it's got a very high DSR. Uh, and that's because there are multiple metrics. I've never found a market that has that has um, every metric is above like the benchmark, the norm. There's always good and bad. And half of that isn't because there's there's this um, tug of war between supply and demand. It can often be uh, simply because the, the data is stuffed up. There's There's some anomaly in the data. And that's why you need to look at so many, to look at a property market from so many different angles, um, each metric on its own is is unreliable. Um, but each metric tells a little story about uh, the possible nature of supply and demand. So, but but to try and answer that question without totally dodging it, um, market cycle timing is is one of the better metrics. Um, uh, I, I'm. I would probably have a look at that sometimes, um, but I. I want to be careful that I don't allow my own bias to interfere with what the DSR is saying, because I've done that in the past. Uh, the media have contacted me and said, uh, Jeremy, give us your top 10 for 2020. And uh, I've looked up the DSR and I've filtered out a few because I didn't like them for whatever reason. And if I just left them in there, the result would have been better. Uh, so there's... There's so much bias in what we do. It's really hard to be completely objective as human beings. But we are getting to a point in, in this AI age where sooner or later we are going to have to trust the machine. So you're lifting, if you lift the lid on the DSR score, um, what are some of the elements that are in there then? I mean, you've got, I mean, market cycles, they speed up, they slow down. I mean, they're, they're pretty erratic these days. And also different suburbs are in different supposed property clocks and all that sort of palaver. But... Also, I mean, I think, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, I think like for example, I seem to remember that one of the metrics that is goes into your algorithm is some search data, property search data. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, online search interest. Yeah, so it's uh, the number of searches um, per property that are, that are for sale. So it's some kind of vague reflection of demand relative to supply. And this is searches in Google though? Like this isn't searches on domain or real estate? Real estate, realestate.com.au. Yeah. Oh, you can get access to that data, can you? Yeah, right, on a suburb level. Yes. Um, some of the other metrics, ripple effect potential, um, neighbour price balancing is, is another one where we're comparing the price of, of uh, this market to its neighbours, um, unit to house value uh, comparisons. There's all the usuals, vacancy rates, auction clearance rates, uh, selling speeds, you know, days on market, those sorts of things. Um there's there's a large number of metrics in DSR version two. Uh, so so back in 2010, I, I launched the first version of DSR. It got an update um, version two in 2015, and uh, Luke and I will release version three um, in a few months. Cool. And what about demographics? Is that part of it? Yeah, there are some demographics that we found useful. Um, a lot of them are, are useless, but yeah, some are. I'd be keen to understand what, what you've come up as being useless because, you know, there's a lot of um, myths around property data and there's a lot of um, misinformation, false beliefs, biases, all that sort of stuff that you've alluded to and you've mentioned there. What sort of things do you think that people would expect to be in a measure like this, in a metric like this, but perhaps uh, would be red herrings? Yeah, well, population growth. Population growth is one that um, everyone just thinks – Oh, of course. Uh, the more people there are, the more demand you've got. 
Uh, the problem is at the suburb level where you've, where you've got to buy practically, uh, it's more a reflection of, of supply than it is of demand because you can't have a high forecast population growth without there being properties there for people to move into. So the properties come first, the supply comes first, and then if demand is sufficient, the people move into those properties. So, so that's one metric that, that's not there. Um, another one is, is incomes and income growth. Um, so looking at uh, the census data on uh, family household income, um, uh, got into some, some pretty intense arguments with, uh, with people in the past, uh, the old school, here's what the data is saying, um, this is what we have to accept. Uh, it's just an unreliable metric. And, and, and keep in mind that I'm, I'm looking for anything I can to make this algorithm better. I mean, I use it for my own portfolio. So if, if incomes, uh, that particular data set, if that led to uh, being a predictor of capital growth, it would be in the DSR straight away. But uh, unfortunately, it doesn't. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Yeah, let's can we just go through them. So, um, so what are the beliefs is that you know people need population growth causes prices, right? But, um, and you say that uh, that also will be more supply, right? People will build more places, right? Because you can't have population growth without more supply. Like otherwise, um, but we yeah, potentially you can, you can underbuild, right? Like you can. So, you know, you're saying what was driving Gladstone? Like what was driving it back when you bought? Um, and then the story of what happened after, right? So mm. um, there was oversupply was built for the population growth. But, you know, if you're talking sort of a, a regional oh, town on, that isn't... On. Just before you go to regional, say for argument's sake you're looking at population growth and you assume a certain area is going to go off and that doesn't build enough, but that's a particularly desirable suburb, then the population growth is forced to compete more or, or those people that want to move there are forced to compete harder to be in uh, in that suburb and then that, that forces a ripple effect. you know what I mean? So I guess even though you're right, they, they can't buy a property that doesn't exist, but you could see how it could impact areas that are in demand if the population, if the new entrants or they might displace uh, previous residents or the previous locals or perhaps it, it creates a ripple effect into, into other suburbs. So it could still have an impact. I'll give an example that, you know, the Chinese buyer, and there's a big mythical, a big, a lot of misinformation around Chinese buyers, but there's been certain suburbs in Sydney and certain suburbs in Melbourne where there has been quite a lot of Chinese money come in and really changed the, the whole makeup of a suburb over some time. So them buying into an area that they weren't previously locals in have displaced people that potentially would have wanted to buy there and potentially got priced out by them. You know what I mean? So even though more houses weren't created the population growth still did change the makeup of the area and has resulted in some price growth in a lot of those areas 
Um, uh, well, if I mean, if you've got a population of three thousand in a suburb, and then three hundred move out, but three hundred move in, then you've got the same population. Yeah. Yeah, but you got more competition at a city level. So you know, um, city's population goes from five to six million people. Yeah, right. Okay, Newtown's population might be the same, right? But Sydney's population has meant that people buying into Newtown now are different to what were buying into Newtown five, ten years ago. So, um, because they're, you know, the maybe they were just new kid buying to, you know, born today in twenty years' time. That's a population growth that is going to compete for that same house in Newtown. And so, it doesn't have to be a you would population growth the suburb level is really hard, right? Same as income growth, because like that's which we can talk about the next point. But population growth of the city. You are creating more demand, and 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 you are changing the the buyer pools in each market. So, do you do you agree with that at a city level? It matters at a macro level, at a macro level, particularly um, uh, international migration, because the properties have not been built mm. for them, and they they all reduce vacancy rates to to, to zero uh, until more properties are built. But when you see these um, these they call them growth corridors, the property developers, yeah, you know, sure. they, and they've got a forecast for population growth, those sorts of things. And of course, an investor has to be practical about it. Let's say, yeah, Sydney is getting all these uh, migrants from Melbourne is, which suburb are you going to buy in? So at some point, you've got to make a, a micro decision. And that's where population growth is, is not helpful. I think you're absolutely bang on. So when someone says, oh, you've got to buy in this area because population's going up, right? Absolutely. That's um, you've hit the nail on the head. However, we're not fans of growth corridors. No, absolutely not. <laughs> but if forever the, you know, Australia's population, people are living longer, right? That's going to lead to more population growth because we're going to have a higher population because we're living longer, right? Um, demographics, we have more kids, um, or less kids, you know, etc. So I think that. So the income growth thing is just because we had an episode with PK, which I'm sure you watched, right? Um, and um. And, and we got into a bit of debate you know, around this income growth. And a lot of people listen to your chart. Apparently, there's this chart that I haven't seen, which I'd love to see. Um, but is that based on census data? Like the sense, the income growth um, every five years in a suburb isn't a good predictor of growth because uh, so income growth doesn't matter. Is that sort of where that belief comes from? Because if you look at that census, incomes don't go up that much. Um, and so then growth shouldn't be that much. Whereas you, you know, some people believe that you need income growth for prices to go up. Is that what you're sort of thinking? Uh, well, all we can do is look at a data set and see whether it is a predictor of, of future capital growth. So if there's some problem with that, with that data set, then yeah, we, we can't use it. And that's, that's the case. Uh, I looked at higher income areas versus lower income areas. I looked at income versus the state, um, for a suburb, suburb income versus state. And I looked at change in income over time. And uh, after, you know, trying a few things, I couldn't find anything that worked. There are better metrics out there to, to spend time on. Um, uh, but if, yeah, if, if a novice investor is, is rummaging around looking at census data and trying to calculate their own income change, it's just, yeah, it's just not going to help them. I think, I think you're right there too, because absolutely the census data is pretty pointless, right? Because in that suburb, over that five years, things only change not that much because only 15, 20% of properties probably transact. You've got some at the low end, which is maybe the apartments, some at the houses, um, and incomes in the area don't really change that much because only a small portion are changing. Then potentially they hit their peak earning capacity, right? Or um, And, you know, the next lot of people moving in is, you know, earning higher incomes than they were five years ago, but that doesn't change the metric at all much as well because um, 
85% of the people are still on the same incomes as they were five years ago. So I think you're right. When you're taking a census data to predict income growth, the it doesn't match up right. You'll see that you know, incomes don't change at a suburb level that much over time. However, pr- that doesn't mean prices aren't changing and the people who are buying in that suburb today aren't different to what they were five years ago. Um, and that's real income growth in my mind is the people who are buying in the market today. What are their incomes versus who were buying in the suburb 10, 15 years ago. Is, is, do, you, do you align with that thought process or do you, does it not make sense for you? That's one of the problems I suspect with why it doesn't work is because you don't have to live in the suburb to buy in the suburb. So how do you know the incomes of the people that are, that are about to make a purchase? But it, it doesn't matter what their incomes are. If they turned up to buy, they've spoken to their mortgage broker, they can afford to buy there. Uh, and, and when you think... Yeah, how does, you try and think of the story, how does income growth channel through into, flow into uh, capital growth? Like, you, you know, someone comes home from work, uh, busts through the door, announces to their partner, hey, sweetheart, I, I got a pay rise. And and their partner replies, I did too, same day. Let's ring up CoreLogic and see what the new value of our house is. You know, no, it, no, it, no. It, they, they would race out and they'd buy in a better suburb. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's another reason why it, it probably doesn't work. Yeah, because basically higher incomes mean that people can pay higher prices. It brings in a, a different type of buyer potentially, or it means that that buyer moves from one suburb they're looking at to a different suburb. And so it's, it's, a, it's, it's volatile. It's not it's static, although, you know, th- there might be only a small percentage of properties that transact. Over time, the makeup of that area um, – you know, will make a difference to prices. I mean, also, you know, you think higher incomes mean that people can actually renovate their houses and improve their houses, and that's actually going to lead to to price growth. But then that's not ever taken into account. You know, is there? Do you actually do that? Do you, you look at price growth and say, well, there's a percentage that's possibly through improvements? Yeah, so that that would be capital injection, but it can still come out come out in the figures. So let's say, for example, in in January, you have. Um, well, let's say you have a suburb where there's only two possible values for a property. It's either $500,000 unrenovated or 600000 and it's a renovated property. Now, if three of those properties sell in January, let's say two of them were unrenovated and one of them was renovated. So you've got two sales at 500000 one at 600000 so the median is 500000 Now, in December, you still have another three sales, but two of them were renovated. 600,000 and one of them was unrenovated 500,000 so the median has grown by 20%. I know prices have gone up. But that, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but of course it's just capital injection. Now that's very difficult to uh, to detect those sorts of fake capital growth. But in order for um, there to be this indicator of incomes growth flowing through into the the property value a lot of ducks need to to line up. So first of all out of the, the, the residents in a, a particular suburb, 33% of them are going to be tenants. So they're not going to spend their increased income on the property. So you can forget about them. Out of the remaining 70%, when you get your pay rise, what are you going to spend it on? Yes, you can you can renovate your property, but you can also just pay down your mortgage. You can buy some shares. You can buy a car, a house. You can go travel, go on holidays. You can buy furniture. There's so many things you can choose to spend your money on. Only a small portion are going to spend their money on renovating the property. And then even once they have got their property, just how they like it, are they going to sell it or are they going to live in it? Because if they don't sell it, nobody knows about it. So it can't influence capital growth. So there's a lot of ducks that need to line up in order for that 
that income to flow through into the value of the property. But what would be a really big mistake is if you looked at your research and said, oh my God, there's no correlation between income growth and capital growth. Therefore, it doesn't matter what the incomes are in the area in which I'm buying. Because those two things aren't necessarily the same, are they? Uh, well, gee, I, I don't know how incomes can be useful at this point in time. No, but it's, uh, all I'm saying is that the inverse isn't true. It isn't that they're not, it isn't that they're useful. We agree. They're not useful based on what we've just all been talking about. But equally, it's not like you say, oh, but I'm going to totally disregard income. I'm going to go and look in low socioeconomic areas because income doesn't count. I think income will play a part but a different part to what potentially a lot of investment specialists might be uh, inferring, perhaps. Yeah, well, it's interesting you bring up the lower socioeconomic demographics because um, I haven't found anything yet to suggest that they, they underperform. Okay. Now, I did a little bit of, um, uh, little bit of research before uh, our meeting today because I thought I'm going to pluck out the suburbs that all three of us live in. And so that's random enough, isn't it? So now I've got it right though, Jeremy, you're in Mount Druid, is that correct? Yes. Yes. Um, I'm in Newtown. I also added in Balmain because I talk about it all the time. It's where my office is. And I added in Bayview, which is where you are, isn't it? If I oh, got I'm that in right, Brookola, Chris. But anyway, another oh, no, I got it wrong. <laughs> Let's say I live in Bayview. I'm happy. Bayview's a nice suburb. I, live I thought in for some reason you went to Bayview. <laughs> so I looked back over the last 30 years and, and so I just thought this would be good to have a discussion around. I don't know the answers to this. All I can just say is, um, so, and I should have checked the CIFA scores. So that's the socio-economic economic index for you, Australia. You yeah. probably could check that really super quickly, Jeremy, because um, that's mm, you've got handle on that. I, I, yeah, I've, I've shut down the database, so, so maybe my not so quick. guess, and I'm going to totally guess this, but I'm guessing Madrid might be sitting around six or seven perhaps, and Bayview Newtown, Newtown maybe about nine maybe or eight or nine, um, Bayview Balmain probably around ten this is my guess, right? Um, so that's just guesstimates. If we look at the annual growth rate, um, so the annual, so an average um, over 30 years, Bayview is 8.1%, Newtown 7.9%, uh, Mount Druitt 7.5%, Balmain 8.2%. So if you extrapolate that though, I mean, this is the thing that if you, so they're all, you know, within a band there, that which, which is tracks according to the aggregate for the whole of the country, right? But if you looked at opportunity cost, um, because, and I'm only going on, on this because you said that incomes don't matter, that if you said, right, well, the income, the average income for Mount Druitt, which I should have checked, but I know it would be lower than Balmain, for example, um, you know, if you look at Balmain being the best performer, Mount Druitt being the lowest performer, there's an opportunity cost um, in Mount Druitt of that difference between 7.5% annualised growth and 8.2% of uh, 186,000. But in Balmain, if I flipped it the other way and said instead of growing at 8.2%, it only grew at 75 that would be a difference over the 30 years of 500,000. So it does make potentially a difference. So this is, look, I've just plucked these randomly and this is just what the data tells me. All right, I'll, I will, I'll tell you what you're doing wrong with your research. Okay, And good. this is a mistake that a lot of analysts make. And I've seen this done by the RBA, Real Estate Institute of Australia, SGS Economics and Planning, a whole bunch of them. What they do is they only look at one time frame. Now, uh, probably about, um, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago, maybe it wasn't that far, I was looking for 
two property markets where one was diverging from the other. So you plot their capital growth um, as a cumulative growth chart, so not their actual dollar values. And I was trying to find one that diverges just continually over a long period of time from the other. And so I might try Mossman versus Mount Druitt, um, Sydney versus Launceston, any, any combination. I kept going and going and going and I couldn't find one. Uh, well, I could, but it took forever. And one thing that I observed uh, over this decade of looking at these historical growth charts is there is a, a common or pattern in, in the data. One market will diverge outperforming the other and the other will catch up it'll be like a pinch point sometimes crossing over and beating the original one only to be caught up again in the future so they either crisscross all the time or they have these pinch points where they come together the winner of a capital growth race is determined by where you when you set the start and finish dates not where you buy so you are looking at one 30-year time frame in the world of data science what they would do they call this um, cross-validation so if you had a 30-year horizon uh, a 30-year data set you would run a 20-year window across that multiple times to see whether anything changes have you got the same pattern regardless of where you start and finish that 20 year point in that 30 years do you have the same pattern so what you those figures you're reading out now five years ago they could have told completely the opposite story and five years from now they could tell completely the opposite story and and that's what i have found that there is a tendency over the long term for all property markets to grow at the same rate so if I analyse this better, I would be saying, right, let's look at it at after five years, so 1993 to 1998. Then look at it after 10 years, say so 1993 to uh, 2003. Then look at it at 15 and look at it at five-year increments and then it, we could see whether it, it followed the pattern that you're talking about. Uh, well, you can keep it to just 20 years. If you've got 30 years of data, you could probably even use 25 years, but you just want to roll that across e each month. Do it repeatedly again and again. Um, it's, it's, it's a sampling. It's called sampling. So you take a subset of the full population of data and then you see, can I split this up in some way where it tells me a different story? And, and you will find that. So if I was going to look at, um, at comparing two uh, areas, and one of them was Gladstone. Would that have the same? Would that tell us the same story? Uh, well, there are always exceptions to the general pattern that follows through. Always, I mean, you know, the general rule about playing the lottery is you lose. But there are exceptions to that. But we can't ask people who have won, what is it you did differently on the day when you filled out that coupon? That's just completely random. So Gladstone has had a, a specific circumstance which has interfered with its last, you know, 10, 10 15 years uh, of growth. But long term, it will come good. Did they have two specific um, circumstances, really? The first one is that they're into the mining you know, mm. boom. The first one was that investors and investor advisors were basically pushing it and so heaps of people bought in there. Um, do you know what I mean? Like, so there, in a way there's that, that it's what got people into the market in the first place and then basically what undid them. Um, and I would think that potentially I'm wondering whether as a metric as in your DSR, maybe a slightly different metric would be um, increased investor activity in an area and, you know, at the same time, decreased stock 
you know, rapidly decreasing stock. Is that a predictor of what's going to be a uh, you oversupply? Know, well, yeah, or, or yeah. not even an oversupply. It's an over over demand. Oh, yeah. It's it's interesting you bring this up because I've heard a lot of people in the past talk about. Um, uh, these these uh, self-fulfilling uh, prophecies about, um, you know, if you pump up a, a property market, a particular advisor pumps up that property market and that, that pushes it up. Um, and it just it just keeps going up because there's there's more demand. The DSR, this market cycle timing metric, is a is, is sort of self-regulating in this respect. So if there's been too much recent growth, the score becomes lower. So if people were to invest in this market, push up the demand, uh, because, you know, I, I announce, you know, XYZ suburb is going to be the next growth suburb and I really pump it up, then the DSR will come lower and lower uh, the more and more growth you get in that area. And so it would be less and less on people's radars. So it does sort of self-regulate. It can't, there is no um, possibility for a, a, a pump for three years, you can't keep promoting a market as being an outperformer for th for three years or two years even. Now, I, I don't think any particular um, you know investment advisor has got the volume of individual um, yeah. buyers probably to tip a market like that. But these group think in certain forums, for argument's sake, and you do you get in certain investor forums. I don't spend an awful lot of time in there, but you, whenever you do go in there, you do certainly see there's absolute trends in terms of what people think is you know the place to invest ne next. I mean, currently, for instance, a lot of investor money has moved from Adelaide to Perth. And, you know, so therefore it's not just one advisor, there's a whole bunch of people. There's people that are, that have an advisor, there's people that don't have an advisor. They're all sort of um, following that trend. So um, I, I, how does it impact your score? To have more people buy into an area and less available stock, why wouldn't that send your DSR score up? Well, it would, yeah. If there is legitimate demand there, more buyers. It might not be sustainable, but it's still legitimate. These people have made a decision that that's, that's the place that they believe is going to go, you know, is the best place to invest in. Um, so your, all, your early warning system wouldn't work because it would still be reflecting the fact you've got competition and more people flooding in and less stock, right? Have I got that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if, if people are buying there then, uh, and su supply is, is weak, then prices are going to go up. And so the, D the DSR is measuring that. Um, but, but the, the, the question is, is it being artificially inflated by some forum? Uh, well, you know, I'll, I'll take artificial. Uh, equity any any day if it's if I can yeah, but if that's I can if sell you're flogging, and make a profit yeah if you're selling that's great but if you're buying in there because you're thinking I'm I'm on the the beginning of a growth cycle and it's been pushed by it's been manipulated effectively right well there are there are other metrics apart from simply how many people are buying right now you know that's like a, a transactional metrics. There's other things like ripple effect and market cycle timing. And, and if those metrics don't line up because this has just been pumped up for whatever reason on a forum, then, then it won't appear on, as a high, with a high DSR. So, Jeremy, with the, um, the short term, so let's say someone doesn't want to um, try to, you know, basically take a punt on short term, yeah, with the DSR and we're backed with evidence and they don't want to say, I want to buy in this location that I think is going to do well over three years. If someone's thinking sort of 30 years, right? Because a lot of people, like you say, they don't have the time or the energy to 
actively trade property and they don't want to take the risk of it, right? Because we talked about when it goes well, yeah, you make a little bit of money. But if it goes bad, doesn't grow, opportunity costs, wasted borrowing capacity, you know, loss, et cetera. When you make a bad property decision, you may not buy another one, et cetera, right? So there's risk involved with just making bad decisions. Do you believe that then they should just almost like just pick any suburb really? Because the, the belief is, you know, it doesn't really matter where you buy over the longer term because they're all going to go back to the mean. Is, is, <laughs> do you, like, does it matter whether you, like if you've got, let's say you're buying the inner north of Sydney, does it matter if you buy in the established suburb where they're not building anymore or the suburb where they're building lots of apartments, right? Um, and the demographics changing or the suburb where, it's got a very strong school zone or it's a bit of a black zone for public transport or it's doesn't matter because they're going to grow the same rate over 30 years. Is, is, is there no point in, in overlaying any thought to that because they're going to go back to the mean? Uh, well, yes and no. So first of all, there is a general trend towards the, the, the reversion to the mean, but there are some indicators uh, of our performance over the long term. It's just very difficult that's all so if you were to enter a market with a short-term outlook and things didn't turn out so well uh you can just sit back and hold uh and uh, you, you might not want the aggravation the effort of trading you can just sit there and uh and um, you will get some decent growth eventually and one thing that surprised me about uh, the DSR, it's been around for a while now, well over a decade, I was looking at its performance over over 10 years um, on the assumption that's somewhat long-term. It hasn't been around for 20 years, so I can't do that analysis. But I was surprised to see that although all this capital growth mostly happened in the first three years, still after 10 years, it had been outperforming the national growth rate not because it's continuing to grow faster than the national growth rate, but because of the first three years of exceptional growth, it was still ahead of mm. the national growth rate. So even over 10 years, it's it's not that bad. And to answer your question, um, a very large number of suburbs, you can go pretty much any, mini miny, mo. There are some uh, exceptions to that, like uh, Gladstone, like, you know, mining towns, um, some fringe suburbs, some greenfield estates, and in particular unit markets, because you've got no control over future supply. So if you buy in a built-up area, you buy a house in a built-up area, you buy an established house, like an old house, in a built-up area, um, it's almost um, impossible to fail over 30 years. But, okay, and then... Does it matter though, because you said like running those time series, does it matter when you buy in these suburbs um, in terms of, uh, and like, you know, for example, in 2021, right, or 2017, or, you know, at the height of booms, you can buy poor streets and weird aspects and weird blocks um, for pretty high prices, right? Um, so does it matter when you're buying, like, you know, for example, you might buy the poorest streets and the weird aspects at better prices in 2018 or 2022, right? Um, so does it matter when you enter the market at all? Or do you think that ultimately you shouldn't worry about anything? You should just just pick anything. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> well, it's, it's hard to say definitively, yeah, it doesn't matter because 
Well, you, you use the term weird. I, I haven't analysed weird weird properties. I don't know how to classify them. I don't, I don't know how to numericalize that. Uh, so it's possible there could be some feature of a, that a property has which over the long term will will underperform that, that, that hasn't been analysed. But in order to, to know which features to pursue, it has to be analysed. We can't just guess. It's 21st century now. We don't do that anymore. And so you think the local knowledge of agents in an area that can see when properties go for premiums in booms, they go for a hold value in downturns, they um, always have a lack of stock, they always have ridiculous demand, out-of-area buyers want them. Um, do you think that those factors that they see on in through working in that maybe that's hard for them to analyse because you're analysing individual properties in suburb, that's hard, but... Do you think that that's all a bit of a waste of time? Like, or do you think it's just there's not enough data, there's not enough evidence to, to, for you to put this into DSR? So for your well, there, point of view, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, there might not be enough data now. I mean, eventually this it is an inevitability that eventually these machines will know more than we can possibly know. Mm. And whatever we can personally observe in our careers, first of all, we're, we're subject to our own bias. Uh, you know, you attend an auction at the start of the morning uh, and the fourth one, by the end of the day, you're caffeine depleted, you have a completely different appraisal of, of what happened because of subjectivity, because of bias. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful thing about the algorithms is that they... Uh, approach data in the same way, whether it's in in um, Kuji or Kulangato, it doesn't matter. They're completely objective. Yep. The second thing, of course, is that there's literally thousands of suburbs. We cannot personally get around to that that many suburbs. Um, and of course, there's there's the history. I mean, I mean, decades versus a career that's maybe only fifteen years. Uh, and and humans, we can only way up in our own minds, maybe half a dozen variables, whereas yeah. algorithms can, can cope with hundreds. So even if the data isn't available now, and, and I would say that, that, it, that it definitely is to make a difference to, to property investors, it's available now. Um, it is an, an inevitability. This is going to happen. We are at some point going to have to trust the machines. Have you ever um, done the sort of segmenting a market, right, and saying, okay, well, the top 20% of properties within a suburb their growth rate versus the twenty bottom twenty percent has that proven anything at all? Or yeah, there's there's still a fair bit of work to do there. Um, one thing I was looking at uh, just recently, just uh, late last week, was uh, the maximum sale price of any property in a suburb versus the minimum sale price of any property in a suburb. Looking at that over thirty years, how has that changed? Because if there is this thing like a an investment grade property that, that outperforms over the long term and there's the complete polar opposite in the same suburb, uh, uh, you know, a trash property that continually underperforms, then we should be able to see the percentage difference between min and max for a suburb for sure. uh, widen over 30 years. But yeah. it had actually narrowed, uh, marginally narrowed. And I've done this sort of uh, research before back in 2018 where I looked at the standard deviation uh, of properties over the over the long term within the same suburb, and yeah, things had definitely narrowed. They hadn't widened, which tends to suggest uh, that that over the long term, it is uh, yeah, uh, it, it is a pattern in the data that more often than not, uh, this you know properties will grow at the same rate. That's not to say that you can't find exceptions.
This is fascinating, Jerry. I, I think that this is fodder for another conversation. And I think because I've done research on individual properties, I've tracked many properties in different suburbs over multiple sales, and I can see the gap widening on individual properties. But to say that the aggregated data doesn't show that is quite fascinating. I'd love to explore what, you know, more why that might be the case. And um, But, you know, this has been a very interesting chat, Jeremy. I hate to pull it up short. We're under a time constraint today. But um, let's, uh, let's hope to have this chat in, you know, more fullness at, uh, in the not-too-distant future. Sure. And thanks very much for inviting me on your show, guys. Thank you, Jeremy. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.